Hello, and welcome back to Blood, Bones and Brains, and this first episode on the history of biomedical science within the NHS. I had some good feedback from last week, and hopefully this week I'll slow down my pace. I was proper shifting it along last time. The advice I'd got is that 4,400 words should take about 35 to 40 minutes. Thanks, David. However, last week was 31 minutes, give or take, which means that I was definitely speeding. I hope you like my rough and ready logo. I'm pretty sure that that photo is of a dysfunctional bacillus subtilis. But I have so many badly labelled photos of bacteria, and being kind of colourblind, I can't really tell anymore. But it is pretty, so I'm living with it. So what are we going to talk about this week? I say we. I mean, of course, me. You are going to listen. This should be about a half-hour splash and dash on the history of healthcare in Britain before the formation of the NHS in 1946. Starting with a very brief history of Victorian healthcare and then a more detailed overview on the National Insurance Act in 1911. And lastly, beverage in 1942. This will hopefully act as a good foundation from where we will move off from when we return in a fortnight's time. I thought it was going to be a relatively simple story. Everyone paid, then suddenly not. But no, of course not. I'm dealing with human history, not the evolutionist cells, so it's messy. So messy, I had to reduce what I was going to talk about from Victorian Britain to Beaven, down to Victorian Britain to Beveridge, as so to keep it within the half an hour to 40 minute range. So where do I start? This story is at least 100 years in the making, with a Prussian, two Welshmen and East Londoner, somewhat unsurprisingly, the drivers of this reformation. Those men being David Lord George, and Nuremberg Bevan, and Clement Attlee, with Otto von Bismarck as an important bit player, and Winston Churchill aiding and batting in his usual inimitable way. So choosing a place to start is difficult. Though, in this case, we can discount the Nuremberg Bevan and Clement Attlee, as they're not going to start in this episode. The history of healthcare in Britain before 1948 is complex, and the logical comparison is that extra bizarre way the United States does business. Always a touchy subject, but worse lately. But it is interesting the parallels that exist to the UK's health service pre-1948 but post-1911, with David Lloyd George's National Insurance Act being a mixture of Medicare and workplace health insurance, though of course entirely paid for out of the national pocket rather than private firms. This wasn't the case in the Victorian era, healthcare being initially run through wealthy patients paying for their healthcare to cover poorer patients, which, being the early Victorian period, there are many. Many of the hospitals and graveyards in use today, apart from the new ones like Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow, were laid down in this period, including, just in London, King's College, Moorfields Eye Hospital, Royal Brompton, the Royal Free, and the Royal Marsden. This is partly in response to the increasing population density, especially to the south and the west of the city, but mostly in response to the utter calamity that was the 1837 and 1854 cholera outbreaks. I guess I should talk about these at some time. I've never watched Game of Thrones. Shock bloody horror, right? But I hear a Jon Snow is important. As too is a Jon Snow in our story, though, unlike the eponymous Jon Snow, Jon Snow knew something. Conditions in these hospitals must have been hideous. The doctors, 
whose anatomy and knowledge is getting pretty good, had no treatments for bacterial infections. And with the suicide of Ignace Simmelwise in 1865, the voice for decent hygiene in doctors had fallen, leading to unnecessary deaths by person-to-person contact. Oh, Simmelwise, you and Ludwig Boltzmann were two unsung heroes of the 19th century, dying too soon, killed by their stubborn bastards of colleagues. Sorry, a quick diversion to something that isn't biology at all, but it is important to me, and damn it, it's my show. Boltzmann's name doesn't even appear in the Wikipedia page for the elucidation of atoms. Just what the F? It boggles my mind, and it makes me cry. Sorry, back to the 1850s. And in Britain, a new voice will be heard out of the back of that bizarre pissing contest, Crimea. Oddly enough for the 1850s, it was a lady. You should all know who I'm talking about, unless you live under a rock, which is of course possible, Florence Nightingale. Regardless of her effectiveness in the war, Florence spent the rest of her life fighting for the improved nature of hospitals and proper training for nurses, and mostly succeeded. This was helped by the formation in 1858 of the first version of the General Medical Council. At the turn of the century, this was no longer the situation. A series of concerns that the system was being abused led to the formation of a more rigid system of payments. Means tested to use a modern phrase, by women trained in sociology and economics, called alimonies. This improved the quality of care for all patients, wealthy private patients getting their own rooms and poor patients having to worry less about care because it's being funded better by those richer patients. Still, this does not count as medical fees so much as pseudo-enforced charity. The hospital was also becoming more and more important in treatments, surgeries becoming more common for diseases like appendicitis, increasing survival, but also the dependency on specialists and equipment. The birth of the professions related to medicine was causing increased costs. This is only going to get worse with the birth of the radiographer by Marie and Irene Curie during the First World War, for instance. So that's hospitals until 1911. But what of that other bastion of the NHS, the GP surgery? Well, in the 1850s, it generally cost sixpence to see the GP. Allegedly, this equates to £9.29 in 2000. This was out of the reach for most of the working class population and some of the middle class population. By 1900, private healthcare insurance schemes had appeared, allowing these classes some respite from the clause of the debitors. For the working classes, many unions had their own insurance systems, This did not cover many people, and I imagine it was a hit-and-miss affair as to how much premiums were. Indeed, there were systems, like those in Newcastle and Glasgow, both dirt-poor cities with massively high population densities for the 1900s, that meant that local hospitals taxed everyone, only a few pence, and that allowed for a free point-of-use service, a proto-NHS. And so, here, in our story, steps up Bismarck, post the unification of Germany and the creation of the first modern welfare state in 1883. For a man we would call deeply conservative, Bismarck had some truly liberal ideas. It's funny what strong opposition can do to a politician. These were a set of laws that included state health insurance, money for treatment and sick pay for 13 weeks, state accident insurance and pensions, all of which by 1889 covered most of the male population of Germany and no small number of women as well. 
To round it out, by 1903, Germany had a full set of workers' rights and anti-child labour laws. A fully modernised country. Post-1871 Germany will appear more often than not in this series. I'm not sure Bismarck was planning on the effect he had on the rest of the world. With Theodore Roosevelt, my personal favourite president, he and his children were highly intelligent doers, like Roosevelt's own personal hero, Hamilton. Yeah, see, I can get Hamilton into this history of the NHS. Forcing the progressive era in American politics in response to changes in Germany. In the UK, only about 20 years later, the 1906 election led to a true majority for the Liberal Party. Their term was full of welfare changes, including the Trade Disputes Act in 1906, Workmen's Compensation Act in 1906, Education Provision of Meals 1906, Education 1907, Matrimonial Courses 1907, Children and Young Persons Act 1908, and the Old Age Pensions Act 1908, bringing Britain into almost parity with Germany. But by 1909, the UK was still felt to be behind Germany by our first major British player. So, from stage left, enter David Lloyd George, the exchequer for the Liberal government under Herbert H. Asquith. He had, in 1908, visited Germany and found that the complete welfare system was clearly better than what Britain had in terms of supporting workers through illnesses. And so, in April 1909, he proposed the People's Budget, or what he said in his speech, I am not going to do a Welsh accent. This is a war budget. It is for raising money to wage impeccable warfare against poverty and squalidness. I cannot help hoping and believing that before this generation has passed away, we shall have advanced a great step towards that good time when poverty and the wretchedness and the human degradation which always follows in its camp will be as remote to the people of this country as the wolves which once infested its forests. This budget is the start of the welfare state, and with it Lloyd George is openly stating to Germany that it is a threat. This is also the battleship budget. All we have now left to do in order to put ourselves on a level with Germany, I hope our competition with Germany will not be in armaments alone, is to make further provision for the sick, the invalid, for widows and orphans. This narrative is being a bit generous to the British government. In truth, Part of the motivator was for the abysmal showing in the Boer Wars, due to, in part, a lack of healthy young men who fitted the standards expected of the British Army. You'd think that this would be enough to pass David Lloyd George's ideas. But, much like the austerity crisis of a few years back, where the House of Lords vetoed the bill from David Cameron and he threw his toys out of the pram, the House of Lords vetoed this bill constantly, and the Liberals, and the recently ascended George V, threw their toys out of the pram. Indeed, David Cameron should have been down on his knees and thanks to David Lord George. How many bloody Davids in this story? Because the constitutional crisis that the 1909 budget caused led to a severe reduction in powers of the House of Lords. The rest of us should weep. Sorry, off track again. After the general election in 1910, and the resolution of the crisis caused by the passing of the 1911 Parliament Act. The next step was the passing of the 1911 National Insurance Act. As this is the basis of modern Britain's taxation system and the NHS, it's worth a detailed look at the bill. As quoted before, it was suggested in the budget of 1909-1910 by David Lloyd George as a way to reduce worker anxiety by improving 
their access to healthcare. But he wasn't the only major player who suggested a national insurance system, though what that player wanted was much more a proto-doll. Sorry, job seekers allowance. No, wait, sorry, universal credits. Than a way to pay for healthcare. That player was the then president of the board in trade and unlikely friend to David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill. As I said, aided and abetted. As it was, the final act covered both ideas, especially in cyclical industries such as shipbuilding. These were covered in the first two acts of the bill. The third act is general ancillary stuff. As part of the bill, David had a run-in with the economist William Braithwaite, who, through writing down his thoughts and sitting down with David, to give David his due, he admitted that he needed help from William to understand William's point, convinced David that an insurance pot was better for the country than the German system. Honestly, I'm in David's boat. I don't get it either. But, as said, William convinced him, and it seems to have worked. So then, part one covers the contributions and benefits in regard to health as given out by NI. The contributions for men earning under £160 a year were 4p from their wages, 3p from their employer, and 2p from the treasury, until the age of 45, when it seems to have become means-tested, but up to no more than 7 ninths. For women, it was 3p, 3p, 2p. It's only 1p less, but in this day and age, it's still weirdly less. For that contribution, workers, be they male, female, or foreign, foreigners getting benefits is not a new phenomenon, nor is right-wing wailing about it, got free tuberculosis treatment, which should really drive home how bad TB is. 13 weeks of 10 shillings per week if off work sick for more than 4 days, and 5 shillings a week for another 13. After those 26 weeks, there was provisions for indefinite support at 7 shillings a week. There was also a provision for giving 13 shillings to a new mother, be she a wife or widow of an insured man, or even insured herself. It was designed to cover the midwife's fee and to support the woman for the next four weeks. Until 1913, this was paid to her husband, if alive, or herself, if a widow or unmarried. However, there was no provision for payment of fees for hospitals. But, you know, little changes... Whoa, oh, oh. Sorry, Frank. I like that song. It's a good song. The list of exemptions is surprisingly short, with there being conditions to do with time. You weren't allowed to draw sickness pay until at least a year of contributions, six months of maternity, and at least a year's worth of work after sickness pay to reset it to ten shillings. And you weren't allowed to draw contributions if you were living abroad. Collections of contributions were performed by a bunch of committees called the Proved Societies, which workers signed up to and they collated the cash and sent it to the Treasury. These committees included trade unions and insurance companies, including the still-existing Prudential. These were also the groups that drew from the national insurance, and they had the discretion when it came to the allocation of those funds, especially in cases where the insured person was in a sanatorium and had dependents. Part 2 of the National Insurance Act is the Unemployment Act. This was set up to give shipbuilders and similar, who had very intermittent employment, support. To do this, an extra 2.5p a week was given to the pot, and 7 shillings was paid per week for 15 weeks. 
if you could prove you were looking for work. Much like modern day job seekers. Sorry, universal credits. Scotland, like the modern era, had their own system because of the exigencies of the islands and the highlands, which held until the creation of the NHS in 1948. This was, unsurprisingly, called the Highland and Islands Medical Service and was centrally run, despite the fact that it was a paid service, though payment was pretty low. A moment that will make British listeners laugh, in the almost guaranteed fallout from a change in taxation as large as the National Insurance Act was, there was a war occurring between the owner of the Times and Daily Mail, Alfred Harmsworth, Lord Northcliffe, and David Lloyd George in which the Daily Mail maintained its reputation as being the absolute worst by dragging both David Lloyd George and H.H. Asquith through the mud because of Lord Northcliffe's distaste for national insurance. Because of that, both Asquith and Lloyd George went on the attack with David Lloyd George comparing the newspapers to foot and mouth disease. Defiance of the law is like the cattle plague. It is very difficult to isolate it and confine it to the farm where it has broken out. Although this defiance of the Insurance Act is broken out first amongst among the Harmsworth herd, it has travelled to the office of the Times. Why? Because they belong to the same cattle farm. The Times, I want you to remember, is just a tuppenny, a halfpenny edition of the Daily Mail. If you Google the National Insurance Act, the number of satirical cartoons is absurd, mostly from these Northcliffe-aligned magazines, plus that greatly satirical Entity Punch. Part of the driver for this was from doctors who were afraid of not getting paid as well as they used to with private practice without understanding that they weren't losing their wealthy patrons just having a more secure bottom end as they were actually going to get paid by the government yes yes through the approved societies i hear you screaming at your podcast streaming service of choice and the voice was being heard through the british medical association still the preeminent trade union for doctors in the UK, 186 years after its beginning. The other great driver of this vitriol is our good frenemy, change. The mentality of, this is the way that our grandparents did it, so why do we need to change it? If you want to see this in the modern world, visit the red side of the House of Congress, or the boardrooms of insurance companies. The bastards don't get to be let off the hook that easily. Obviously it was passed being written into law with royal assent in December 1911, with activation in July 1912. It was deemed to be a success very quickly, and by the time it was modified in 1913, there were 13 million peoples, peoples insured in the scheme, or about 40% of the total population. So, all seemed well. And if it hadn't been for the fact that war were declared, that would likely be the end of this, and we would be stuck, a hundred years on, with this halfway house system. But of course, War were declared. World War One didn't change. World War One didn't change much within the provisions of the NI Act, other than having far more women insured than pre-war, and the start of the government scaling back its fiscal responsibilities. This caused unwarranted tension in the system. You can't stop being laissez-faire and then suddenly start again. This is not how it works. Also, the insurance companies were whining. For once, something they and I agree on. But the war was massively important for the introduction of even better surgery in general healthcare, including, as said earlier, the introduction of wide-scale usage of radiography. This has the effect of concentrating healthcare even more into the hospital, although even within the interwar period, the old poor law and voluntary hospitals had not been fully closed. 
It was in this climate that the first Minister for Health was appointed in 1919. Chris Addison was the first Minister for Health. No, not that Chris Addison. Though they do look shockingly similar. The interwar period was tough on the government's coffers due to our Great Depression occurring in 1921. Not long after the extension of unemployment benefits to the entirety of the NI contributors, which was apparently a bit of a surprise to the MPs involved. I know this talk of unemployment is not really biology, nor is it NHS history, really, but it is part of the welfare state, which directly affected the decision by Clement Attlee to create the NHS in 46-48. Plus, I think that it is interesting for the sake of just knowing. In 1929, the last vestiges of the poor laws, first written up by Thomas Cromwell to replace the monasteries, were abolished. The hospitals controlled by them turning into a rush of general hospitals, being controlled by their local government. Overall, the 30s weren't much better, with the collapse of Wall Street in the Great Depression. In 1930, the need to be looking for a job was removed, and by 1934, the age of introduction in the NI scheme was dropped to 14, with claims being allowed from 16. Still, wives and dependents were not really covered by the scheme, leaving large proportions of the population uncovered, not easing the struggle of most people. Also, by this point, the government had reduced its level of contributions into the NI scheme, the pot being pretty self-sufficient. However, this had the effect of changing the nature of the approved societies for the worse. By the declaration of the war in 1939, the approved societies had fallen out with the government, with not many sitting anymore and collecting slowed down. As to hospital care, the situation that had developed in Glasgow period 1911 continued nationwide, with London, Liverpool and Sheffield being the sites of multiple hospital confederacies that had subscription services. An example of this, a sort of proto-booper, was the Pioneer Healthcare Centre that was located in all places Peckham. Though Peckham in the 1920s was not the Peckham of the 60s onwards. This managed to grow all through the 30s and 40s, until being killed by the NHS in 1950. And it was this way until World War II. 3,000 words, and this is a horrifically shallow overview from Victoria's accession to the declaration of war in World War II. But I hope you get the point that it was complex, even after the introduction of the National Insurance Act in 1911. One thing not spoken about is the ambulance service. One of the three modern emergency services, and one of the two you actually bothered to move out of the way for. Started in 1882 and continues to this day as a beacon of on-site treatment for local events, St John's Ambulance was one of the biggest charity-run services, then and now. In 1919, a national, ser a national ambulance service was planned using internal combustion engine-driven ambulances built for the war that had been surplused out of the army. This lasted until 1948 with the service growing, becoming more complex by the year. 999 came into being in 1937. It makes sense with old rotary phones. You stick your finger in the 9 and you wind all the way around. No thinking, no hassle. And with modern phones, hitting the same number three times also makes sense. 911 just doesn't have the same ring to it. Sorry, America. In 1948, as part of the NHS Act, the National Ambulance Service, like now, came under the control of local hospital committees, and slowly over the next 70 years it has become more and more professional, 
along with biomedical science, nursing, physiotherapy and the like. So, we've got to the Second World War. During the war, even more than the first one, Britain nationalised and socialised. Between rationing, that was started in January of 1940, and the government taking control of industries such as railways and shipbuilding. So, of course, healthcare would be next. Interestingly enough, according to the author Laura Dawes in her book, Fighting Fit, general healthcare went up during the Second World War. This is hardly surprising. The government spent a good deal of time and effort, headed up by Lord Wharton, and an interesting man in his own right, on getting rationing just right. This admittedly relatively boring meal programme was well constructed, leading to the improvement of health, especially in poorer families. Doctors marvelled at the fact that mentally ill patients, in the immortal words of Monty Python, got better. They admitted this was because they were busy being useful to their fellow man, rather than actually fixing the problems. But it does show the paradoxical effect that war can have on people, and reminds me, at least, that even in this time of snowflakes and identity politics, when the metal meets the meat, people will step up to bat and do their best, even if they, under normal circumstances, couldn't find a niche. If you excuse the horribly mangled metaphors. The government in this time also set up the emergency hospital services in 1939, designed to help civilians who had been injured by the bombing that even in 1938, when the process to form the EHS was started, never say Britain was unprepared for the Second World War. It's coming to be known that that's patently not true. That they saw coming. It was run by the co-opting of hospitals and medical staff by the government, leading to a 35,000 bed service. It was never put under very much stress due to its over-engineering, and by 1942 was extended to service the Merchant Navy as well as the Home Guard and Police Force. But the service had one unforeseen and extremely practical outcome. It allowed doctors, the majority source of resistance to a more socialised care system, to see how the other half lived, i.e. doctors who had only ever been private practice doctors, to see what special house the municipal, the former poor law, hospitals went through. This helped clear the way in '46 for the NHS. And of course, Scotland had its own EHS. Ever since, the EHS has been held to be the real start of the NHS, though this, of course, has been questioned. In 1942, the government commissioned a cross-party committee whose role it was to audit and evaluate the success or failure of the current state of the social welfare. This committee released a report in December 1942, a month of infamy, apparently, called Social Insurance and Allied Services drafted by William Beveridge, a man who has been in our story in the background since 1903, and despite being a thoroughly upper-middle-class Anglo-Indian, a la Rudyard Kipling, was always an affirmed liberal, though with some alarming eugenics beliefs. No one is perfect, and he never seems to have acted upon them. He helped Winston pen the need for the National Insurance Act, and then, 35-odd years later, he helped Winston pen the report that bears his name. Apparently, his last words were, I have a thousand things to do. I must refrain from quoting Hamilton again. The principal point of this report is that it outlines what the government must do for the good of the country after the war. Beveridge had five fundamental parts of his 
problems with care and society. These being the five giants on the road of reconstruction of want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. With these in mind, the report gave three suggestions. The first principle is that any proposals for the future, while they should use to the full experience gathered in the past, should not be restricted by considerations of sectional interests established in the attaining of that experience. Now, when the war is abolishing landmarks of every kind, is the opportunity for using experience in a clear field. A revolutionary moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions, not for patching. The second principle is that the organization of social insurance should be treated as one part of as one part only of a comprehensive pol policy of social progress social insurance fully developed may provide income security it is an attack upon want but want is only one of five giants on the road of reconstruction and in some ways is the easiest to attack the others are disease ignorance squalor and idleness the third principle is that social security must be achieved by cooperation between the state and the individual. The state should offer security for service and contribution. The state in organising security should not stifle incentive, opportunity, responsibility. In establishing a national minimum, it should leave room and encouragement for voluntary action by each individual to provide more than that minimum for him himself and his family. Of note, Beveridge disliked the idea of means testing. He wanted a flat I system for a flat rate benefit system, much like the initial years of the 1911 NI Act. He discussed the removal of approved society as unnecessary clutter, and he discusses about comprehensive healthcare. In this, he talks about the need for a service that has two goals. Firstly, the prevention and cure of disease, and secondly, the rehabilitation of citizens to allow them to work turn to the workforce, basically the NHS. At this point, we're at 4,670 words, and it's a sensible place to stop. Though I'd rather hope that I'd be a bit further forward in this story, but that's okay. This week, aka Wednesday or Thursday, as I'm nearly a week late with this one, my apologies, it was more complex than I expected, and half-term and stuff. I will do a quick 15-20 to 20 minute episode on what a modern lab looks like, its general equipment and some more specialised kit, with an aim to talk about these things in more depth in the future. I have also realised that I didn't, did not give a more detailed job description of the modern biomed, which I will do next time. Thank you for listening. Cue the subtly different theme tune that was also written and performed by Kyle David Smith.